October 17, 2021. This is Cardi Show. I'm Grant Cardi. Glad to have you aboard. I want to thank Lou Schiff from Baseball and the Law for his time last week. If you haven't had the opportunity to listen to that, go back. Please do. Covered a variety of topics. CBA, baseball in Florida, relocation, expansion, lawsuits, all that great stuff. And uh, Lou's got a deal coming down the pipe for his books. So uh, follow Baseball Law on Twitter. I think this handles right. I screw it up every time. Let's get into last week in baseball. The American League Championship Series last week has been decided, and they've already played two games. Boston Red Sox, Houston Astros are both tied one game apiece at the moment. And I mean, you look at the Astros, they kind of steamrolled the White Sox to get to the ALCS. Kind of not surprising, kind of surprising to some. Chicago did not have their act together. And uh, makes you think maybe Tony Larus is not going to be back next year. Maybe he gets another shot. Who really knows? The Astros uh, had some clutch hitting that offense, even without George Springer, is still very good. Uh, whether you like him or not, Correa, Bragman, Altuve, Michael Brantley, that guy's a hitting machine. You know, where would the Jays have been if uh, they did sign Michael Brantley? Something to think about there. On the Red Sox side of the ball, playoff experience is uh, so valuable. So valuable. You just look at what Kike Hernandez has done. Kyle Schwarber, same thing. You know, a lot of people, even on this podcast, kind of went south, went sour on the Red Sox because they didn't do a lot of the deadline. They got Schwarber, and Schwarber looks like he's been playing a lot of first base. And we thought Boston was DOA. You thought they they weren't going anywhere, but they continue to surprise you. And one uh, one in the ALCS, Hernandez, Renfro, Schwarber, they're getting those contributions on the pitching side. Don't know how they're doing it, but they're getting it done. Let's see what happens. Dodgers and Giants. So uh, Lou and I talked about that last week. That that should have been a seven game series. You know, um, unbelievable the way it ended. And uh, Atlanta, obviously, uh, they did a great job getting past the Brewers. I thought the Brewers probably were going to be in the NLCS. But how Atlanta's done it without Acuna and Soroka. Um, now Jorge, Jorge Soler is on the COVID IL. It's going to be interesting how uh, the rest of the series plays out. But they got a good start from Max Reed yesterday. And Austin Riley, that guy... Um, He's had a great year, and uh, he had a great game last night, leading the Braves to a walk-off win, 3-2. Game 2 goes tonight in Atlanta. Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame had announced earlier this week, it was Wednesday, that they're going to have a virtual induction ceremony to honor 17 um, people that uh, 17 people in groups, obviously, in teams that uh, have made a huge, giant historical contribution to baseball in Canada. And uh, that takes place Tuesday, November 16th. It is a virtual uh, induction ceremony from my understanding. I don't. I believe the time 7.30. Uh, I will get more details on it. Hell, maybe if we're lucky, we can stream it. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Some managerial vacancies around baseball. Jace Tingler had, uh, was fired a couple weeks ago of the San Diego Padres. Luis Rojas uh, with the Mets as well, no longer there. And now something's up in St. Louis with Mike Schilt. They now have a managerial vacancy. 
So, you got three holes. Let's see who fills them. Maybe Gibby can fill one of them. Who knows? Coming up on the Carter Show, we go back to the Baseball in Canada series. Starting with a controversial one. And Robert Allmeyer coming up. I told this guy where I was from. He said, oh, Canada. Kind of laughed it off. It was funny, huh? Alright, now it is time for the Baseball in Canada series. David Glassford joins me for the return of the Baseball in Canada series. Today's deep dive is about a very controversial subject, Roberto Alomar. Uh, this is going to be a three-part deep dive, folks. We cannot bore you, uh, you know, try to do this all in one shot. Um, I guess one thing I want to kind of touch on that we don't have in my notes here is that there have been some recent events. We will address them. Um, just because we are going through this individual's career doesn't mean we condone what he did. And um, we're going to leave it at that. So, three-part deep dive. Dave, if you're ready, buddy, let's dig into this. Let's do it. February 5th, 1968 is when Alomar is born in Ponce, Puerto Rico. Born into a family of parents, Maria and Sandy Alomar Sr., he has an older sister, Sandia, and an older brother, Sandy Jr. So Alomar arrives as the youngest of three children. Not something you or I can relate to. Uh, so Alomar uh, was in school. He was essentially raised by his mother uh, and his dad. As his dad, Sandy, was on the road. Sandy Sr. was a respected ball player. Started off as a super utility guy playing all the infield and outfield positions except pitcher and catcher. And uh, he was nicknamed the Iron Pony because he's a player that liked to stay in the lineup uh, as he did uh, in back-to-back -back years in 70-71, playing it all 162 with the California Angels. He was a very flashy defender who had throwing issues, 23 errors in 1968, playing second base. Roberto and Sandy Jr. would take in games during the summer and hang out with their dad's teammates, shagging fly balls, etc., Dave, thoughts on Roberto's childhood, and uh, were you surprised to learn Sandy Sr. was a second baseman? Yeah, I knew I knew Sandy uh, Sr. played. I wasn't. I was. I was surprised that he was a second baseman. So, uh, yeah, a little surprised. I didn't think he had as long as a career that he actually did until I started doing research. So, yeah, he played. I think I think it was fifteen years, fifteen hundred games or something. So, yeah, he had a. Great time in the show. Yeah, he did. And uh, the other part, too, uh, to add to that is he had a long coaching career, which we'll probably get into in a little bit. Um, you know, that strange. Uh, 2009, he was the Mets bench coach. That kind of surprised me as well because, um, obviously, Sandy Jr. Was, is still in the game coaching with Cleveland. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to see uh, Alomar not, Roberto Alomar not take a coaching position at the time, I kind of thought it was uh, weird as well. Um a neat story. Sometimes during the school year, if their dad is home, uh, obviously their dad was home during the winter months uh, playing winter ball in Puerto Rico. Roberto went to the diamond with his dad to uh, work on his skills and studies in between taking grounders. Sandy Jr. stays home, studies hard for his test. Sandy gets an A and Roberto gets a B. That kind of pisses Sandy off a bit. How does that work, Dave? I mean, obviously, you know, one guy's kind of 
doing whatever he wants, studying in between. Somebody else is uh, studying whole hog, and uh, there's not too, too much of a difference, eh? Uh, yeah, this kind of reminds me of my older brother. He's, uh, Sandy, Sandy um, Jr. kind of reminds me of my older brother. He seemed to be good at everything. Um, another interesting story was Sandy actually took three years off of baseball, I think between 12, 12 and 14, so 12, 13, 14, he didn't actually even play baseball, he, he was into dirt biking, dirt yep. bike racing, so, and even then, even taking those three, and I think they're pretty important years foundationally of your baseball life, 12, 13, 14, when you're hitting puberty and whatnot, even though he took those three years off, he still ended up being a major leaguer at the catcher position, no doubt. So, I don't know. Sandy strikes Sandy Jr. strikes me as just somebody who's uh, talented at a, talented at everything. Yeah. No, and uh, not to mention uh, an all-star as well, mm-hmm. you know, which is kind of hard to do. Romero was uh, very good at baseball as a child. There was an SABR essay society for American baseball research uh, written about him by a gentleman named Chris Jones, telling us that Nolan Ryan, yes, the Nolan Ryan, taught Roberto how to pitch at the age of four when Nolan and Sandy Sr. played with the Angels. We talked about Roberto doing his homework at the Diamond. He'd also do his homework in the dugout during winter league games that his family started in. His uncle and his father, uncles and his father, were, were kind of a big deal around there. When he is 16, he signs with to play with Keguas, I hope I got that right, in the Puerto Rico Winter League under Canadian Baseball Hall of Famer Felipe Alou. We've heard people talk about how important Winter League Baseball is, Dave, uh, when it comes to player development. One guy I can think of off the top of my head is Pat Borders. Are there any others that you can think of? Uh, one that actually strikes me, um, I know, actually, I know Buck and Pat. Buck Martinez and Pat Tabler yeah. played a bit in winter ball, and they look back fondly. But one that definitely strikes uh, my mind is uh, Avon Rodriguez, Pat Rodriguez. Oh, that's a good one, too. Yes, uh, he's from Puerto Rico, and um, that's, I think, what uh, contributed for him to get to the major so quickly. I think he started at 19, which is unheard of for a catcher, because you got all those other responsibilities. And, uh, yeah, so I think that's what... Uh, enabled uh, Pudge to start at 19, um, catching full-time. So, yeah, Pudge Rodriguez would be the main one um, that comes to mind. Yeah, no, that's a great one. I think I can even give you a more recent one, Teoscar Hernandez, and just look mm-hmm. what look mm-hmm. what that has done for his career. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's a recent one as well. When you hear about Roberto's upbringing and how dedicated he was to the game as a youngster, do you think this is why he has gotten himself into trouble later on in life, which we will discuss later on, of course? Yeah, I think so. Like, it's tough. I, I could kind of see where he would get in trouble that uh, you dedicate your life to something, making the big leagues and staying there, which is which has got to take pretty much all your time and all your dedication, and then all of a sudden it's done. Yeah. And you only have nothing to fall back on, and... Uh, you know, I just uh, don't think he maybe, uh, why he didn't get into coaching, you know, maybe he just didn't like coaching or maybe he's just not that good at um, teaching or whatnot cause, or explaining things out. Like, um, it's definitely a skill of coaching and teaching. So, you know, maybe he was just not good at it or maybe, you know, or whatnot. So, yeah, I can definitely see um, it'd be tough to dedicate your life 
life to something, and then all of a sudden you're 34, 35, 36, and, you know, it's over. Yep, yeah, it's a great point. So, Roberto becomes set on becoming a ball player. He saw his dad struggle as a Latino ball player, as per a Steve Brown article, which we'll be referring to a couple of times. Sandy Sr. never made more than $50,000 a year. Roberto learns how to do things to make him more valuable, such as learning how to become a switch hitter. He, underst- he understood the art of aggressive base running and where to throw the baseball in different situations. Um, so I tried switch hitting once and got told to get back in the batter's box and my side of the batter's box. <laughs> what about you? I didn't even attempt it, Brian. I'm like the most right-handed person you'll ever meet. So, no, that was definitely never anything... Uh... I couldn't really even hit right-handed either, let alone try left-handed. So. <laughs> I was going to stick to right-hand side. boy. How, how hard is it to not just learn the basic fundamentals of the game, um, but to maintain them for young Canadian players? I, I guess, you know, to answer the question, it'd be easier today because there's more resources. But back when you and I played, there kind of wasn't, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, especially, like, running bases, when to tag up, um, you know, make sure, definitely uh, looking where the outfielders are playing when you're on second base is another good one. Are they far back? Are they playing no doubles? A lot goes into being a base runner. It's definitely uh, definitely a big skill. It's definitely a skill. And then the speed thing, that's more God-given, right? Did, did God bless you with speed or did he not? But, uh, you know... So, yeah, definitely base running. I think an advantage um, Alomar would have a bit is in Puerto Rico, you can pretty well play year-round Yeah, with better weather. So he'd have a little more experience than someone from, you know, the Canada or the northern United States. So that would be another advantage he would be able to take advantage. But, yeah, base running especially, that's a skill. That's a skill in itself. It really is. It absolutely is. All, all the basic fundamentals are... Uh, for sure. Um, for sure, yeah. You talk about two guys with no speed. Uh, <laughs> you and I, buddy. Sure. You and I. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Sandy Jr. Uh, signs with the Padres in 1983. His father is signed to the organization as a coach in 1984. Then, Roberto Alomar is signed in 1985 at the age of 17 with the Padres. No other organization since has signed three people with the same last name or that have been related. Um, we're going to see soon how this plays out, but is that something you would do if you were running a team, sign three family members? Uh, I don't think so. Um, yeah, that, I, I, I don't think I'd like that, especially for our coach, right? Do, coaching his sons. Yeah. Um, I'd maybe do two. I wouldn't mind doing maybe brothers on the team. Um, another example of that, I know the two of the Molinas were right. catching for the Angels for a while, Jose and Benji, so right. that was another example. I might do two brothers, but I don't like the coaching other people's kids at the majors. That's a little crazy, I think. Yeah, and uh, Sandy Sr. coaches a Class A team with Roberto and Sandy Jr. That seems like a conflict of interest there, does it not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially for playing time and, you know, development, you know, it, you, you basically you want, at, at that, at that um, level of ball, you pretty want to, you want to give all the players equal time 
coaching wise and uh yeah, that seems a little little conflict of interest would be a good way to put it. As per our friend Kevin Galoo from Cooperstowners in Canada, Roberto signed as a middle infielder. Kevin provides me with some stats about where he plays, which I'll share in a moment. He joins the Charleston Rainbows with his dad and his brother and plays 129 games at second and eight at shortstop. Next season, he wins a batting title, batting 346, playing 113 games at shortstop and nine at second. Now, I think he moves up a level there. Uh, we knew he had athleticism to play both second base and shortstop. It seemed that he was a guy who could play both spots, but wasn't going to split time between positions during the season. And what I mean by that, 81 games at second, 81 games at short. Uh, even back then, he was kind of set on playing one or the other. Would you agree? Yeah, I would say so. Um, yeah, I, I, like I've said on this show before, um, middle of the diamond is, to me, extremely important. Shortstop, most de- demanding position, I think, on the field. I I like to keep it set shortstop. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. We know ball players are creatures of habit. Do you think the expectations nowadays of having players play multiple positions puts them at an offensive disadvantage? Yeah, I definitely do. Like I said, um, I don't mess with my shortstop unless, like, there's a serious problem, injuries or whatnot. I don't like. I don't mind once in a while, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of uh, swapping guys in and out. Every position's tough in the big leagues. Like. Every, every position's got its own things, um, cut, you know, cutoffs and, you know, where to play, play where to play hitters and whatnot, and uh, what's a bad sun, especially in the outfield, what's a bad sun field, what's a bad time of day to play left field, what's a bad time to play right field. So uh, it, it does put a lot of pressure. I don't really like it all that much. Alomar was one of the last cuts during spring training in 1988. Larry Bull, who was the manager of the time, went on record saying, Alomar did everything he needed to do. Did that seem like a service time manipulation to you? Yeah, that could definitely be it. Um, He was only 20 at the time, so that could be it. I mean, I know um, Puerto Rican players tend to uh, make it 20 is... Usually, Puerto Rican players are usually ahead of American players, just like what I said, because it's they can play year round. So, but still, it could have been service time. It could have been just he wasn't ready. He was still twenty, so I don't know. It could have been both. Yeah, I agree with you on that. It's kind of interesting. I like we talked about Vladdy's service time back when he was coming up. Um, and Chris Bryant, same thing. It's even interesting. Even back then, they were thinking about uh, service time and manipulation and uh, all that stuff. April 22nd, 1988, he is called up to the show against the Houston Astros. He records his first hit. It's an infield single at, in his first at-bat off of the Nolan Ryan Express. That's a hell of an accomplishment considering how many no-hitters that large mass of humanity threw, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, he was a man ahead of his time. Um, something like 5,700 5, strikeouts, too. Uh, pitched till he was 47, I think. Yeah. It was, it was pretty amazing. He was a man ahead of his time. I think he... I think one of his pitches was recorded at uh, 109. Oh my God! 
Yeah, he was, he was, he'd fit into nowadays. Um, he was, he was definitely, there's, a lot of people say Nolan Ryan was uh, overrated when he played just because he didn't win a Cy Young. I don't think so. Uh, the people who said that never had to hit off Nolan Ryan. Yeah, well, no, that's crazy to me that Nolan Ryan did not win a Cy Young, number one. Yeah. But can you imagine being his manager, though? Like, you know, hey, uh, Nolan, uh, you know, we're, we're going to sit you on four days, and then Nolan stands <laughs> up and says, listen, I, I'm going on three days rest. I don't care. And you're like, okay, here's the ball. Whatever you need. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, He'll do the managing, too. Yeah, exactly. He'll do the managing. He'll tell you where to play, and you just say, no problem. Yes, sir. <laughs> Just ask Robin Ventura. You don't screw with Nolan Ryan. Yeah. Alomar gets into 143 games at second base in his rookie season. He finishes fifth in the NL Rookie of the Year voting. In 1989, he gets into 158 games, stealing 42 bases, uh, hitting 295. He makes 28 errors playing second. Teammates such as Joe Carter would say he made a lot of mistakes that a young baseball player would make. Were you surprised at how good the numbers were in his second year? Yeah, I think so. I'm little, the 28 errors is a little surprising. That seems a little high. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, 42 bags is pretty good. Uh, the batting average is ex- extremely good, like almost 300. Like, that's yeah. pretty impressive. It really um, is. 158 games, too. That's important. Um Yeah, that's, that's it's, it's pretty impressive, no matter how. You, the errors seem a little high, but, yeah. It's pretty impressive for year two. And, again, like 1989, that would put him at 21. Yeah. So, it he's still, still a young man. That is a great point. Let's talk about Jack McKeon for a moment. He was a manager in 1989 after he fired Larry Boa, and he also held jobs in the front office. For hockey fans, we can equate Jack McKeon to what Pat Quinn did for many years, holding two to three titles. McKeon couldn't even cut it for a year. Well, McKeon has enough on his plate. He decides to step down and hand the managerial reins over to first base coach Greg Reddick. Now, before we go further, there's another story that we need to discuss. Gary Templeton was a very good shortstop in his time. Templeton, though, was a bit of a dumbass in the sense that he acted with a giant chip on his shoulder. There was an incident with the Cardinals where he didn't run out of ground ball. He had a bad knee, the fans got all over him, and he gave it back. He claimed that they were saying racial stuff to him, and he did the thing with a crotch and, and whatnot. Whitey Herzog was the manager at the time. He pulled Templeton off the field, and, you know, they had a, a tussle. I don't know if it was like John Gibbons, Ted Lilly-like, but it was a tussle. And uh, that essentially seals his fate with these St. Louis Cardinals. So St. Louis sends him to San Diego for Ozzie Smith. Let's play what if for a second. If Templeton makes it work in St. Louis, Ozzy, you would think, would stay in San Diego. That would give you, at some point, Ozzy Smith at short and Alomar at second. Say the Padres still move Carter for McGriff. Does that make San Diego perennial contender? That's, that's a great what if. I would say, I would say definitely yes. I don't know if it... Um Gets him a division title or not. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would say yes. Like, that's a pretty good uh, infield, to say the least. Like, Ozzy, Alomar, and McGriff. You know, they definitely they definitely be over 500. Um, I think 91 was Braves' year no matter what, though. 
mm-hmm. right, to make it to the World Series. You know, Glavin, Smoltz, Avery, I'll take that. I'll take the pitching. So, yeah, I think it would make them a contender. I don't think they would would have won that division. I also had Tony Gwynn, too. Don't forget. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, don't forget Tony Gwynn, one of the best contact hitters ever. Absolutely. Templeton, I'm told, is fading in 1990. I understand his range is shot. The bat starts to go cold. I say this knowing that his stats, if you look at them on Baseball Reference, show me that he is a below-to-average National League shortstop. 1991 is his last year of baseball, so maybe the Padres saw something. Your thoughts on Gary Templeton in 1990 and as a whole are what? Uh, he just, going back to what I'm saying, he just wasn't a great defensive shortstop, so I think, other than the incident in St. Louis, uh, I think another reason why they traded him was San Diego, uh, yeah, San Diego was looking for someone with offense, a shortstop with offense, and St. Louis wanted someone with defense, so that was another reason why they swapped, and especially... St. Louis um, played on artificial turf at the old Bush Stadium, so right. they needed. I think they needed a better shortstop with a little more range because, like, the artificial turf just plays that much faster. Um, but yeah, you're right. I was looking at the stats too. Gary Templeton. Um, I don't know. It, probably through injuries or whatnot, or yeah, maybe just those years playing on the artificial turf in St. Louis. Once he got to San Diego, I. Range-wise, he was, like you said, he was pretty well shot. Didn't, um, it wasn't Jack Murphy, it was Jack Murphy Stadium, right? Did they not have artificial turf as well, or did they have grass? I, I would imagine they had grass. I, grass. I think it, it, was, it, it, it was an outdoor stadium, yeah. Right. Good point. Good point. Yeah. So... Uh, Riddick and new general manager Joe McElveen don't want Templeton to play short anymore for the Padres. Templeton will go on to say years later that the clubhouse didn't respect Riddick, and he, being Riddick, could not be trusted. Sandy Sr. aspired as a coach for the Padres on July 11th when Riddick takes over. When asked about it, Riddick plays it off as saying he just wants to bring in his own people. He says he had never had a problem with Sandy, and if Sandy was in his position, Sandy probably would have done the same. There is a discussion point between McKeon and Alomar about him playing shortstop. He said he'd do it. Alomar gets into five games at shortstop in 1990, making four errors. Then Alomar tells his agent at the time, Scott Boris. Boris essentially tells him, he says, if you want to be an everyday second baseman, you tell them you're an everyday second baseman. So now, with Alomar's father no longer coaching, Alomar goes to the All-Star game in 1990. He feels he isn't going to go play shortstop. The backstory has been very interesting. The Padres had Bip Roberts and Joey Cora to play second. If Alomar moves to short, what do you think Alomar's career trajectory looks like as a shortstop? It's a great question. Um, yeah, I'm looking at the number like five, four errors in five games. Not not really a great, uh, not really that big of a sample size. But I, I'd be a little concerned that maybe he had arm strength issues. Right. Those are those are some long throws uh, in the short and like in the hole and whatnot. So I mean, I I, I think he could have done it. I don't know if he would have been a Gold Glover, but um, knowing Alomar's work ethic um, in the past, I think I think he would have got I think he would have got it done. I think he definitely would have been um, definitely a serviceable shortstop. 
There's an arbitration hearing in the offseason that Boris won for Alomar. Then Alomar changed agents. What do you make of Scott Boris as an evaluator of talent? Yeah. yeah, he seems to do a good job. If Boris doesn't give Alomar the advice we just discussed, do you think he stays in San Diego? I would say yes. Um, like I said, I think Alomar would have made it work at shortstop. Um, yeah, I think I, I wouldn't see a reason why San Diego would uh, would need to get rid of him. I, I, I don't know if he would have stayed in San Diego for... Uh, like 10 years, but uh, he would have stayed for the foreseeable future. Stephen Brett in his article we mentioned earlier claimed that Alomar became a whipping boy, a whipping boy for Greg Riddick. What do you think he meant by that? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, the team in 1990 wasn't very good. Um, they had uh, they had a lot of problems in the clubhouse. Um, I don't know if Alomar was part of that. I know... Um, I know Jack Clark was a problem. The first baseman um, for the Padres was uh, a problem in the locker room. So maybe Alomar was part of the problems in the locker room on the 90 Padres. But, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what he meant by that. So McKean gets fired from his executive position in September. That's when Joe McElveen takes over. In the offseason, the Padres lose Jack Clark, as you mentioned, so they need a first baseman. We've talked about this trade many times on this podcast. It's Carter for uh, for Fred McGriff. Then it became Tony Fernandez and McGriff for Alomar and Carter, as the Padres now needed a shortstop. David Fernandez stays in Toronto. Say he moves over to second. Do the Jays go on the run that they do? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think Alomar was key to a lot of... Uh, a lot on that 91 team um, just the speed being able to steal 60 bases I think and batting second uh, and the extra pop that Amar brought I think I don't think they go on the run that that as I think we said on this when you uh, did the deep dive into the 91 Jays uh, that, that lineup was a little thin Alomar seemed to be very happy to be out of San Diego Joe Carter acknowledged how Roberto was a different player in an interview in early 1992. Fernandez maintains his all-star form with the Padres. McGriff kept hitting. Carter drove in runs. This seemed to be this seems to have been a fair trade. Am I right? I think so. McGriff um, actually led the National League in home runs in '92, and then um, yeah, Fernandez had a good season. Um, the Jays really needed um, Jays needed an outfielder was how the trade began was Jays really needed an outfielder and McGriff just played first and John Allroot was uh, ready to play first every day so that made McGriff expendable so I think I think it worked out for both teams and like you said um, Fernandez uh, San Diego needed a shortstop and Fernandez fit the bill too so I think as of 92 it seemed to be a fair trade like whether you like Alomar or not, does this trade put Pat Gillick in the Hall of Fame? I mean, in the end it did, because like I've said, I don't think they won win the three division titles without this trade in 91, 92, 93. Right. And 
three straight division titles. If you're a GM of a team that wins three straight division titles back then, because, um, like, very rarely were you see teams winning three straight division titles back then. Three straight division titles back then, I think, yeah, I think that puts you in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and uh, two World Series as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. This is going to be uh, the next two um, parts of this are going to be uh, very, very interesting and uh, really, really, ex- uh, really exciting one way or the other. Uh, in part two, we're going to discuss Alomar's career playing for the Toronto Blue Jays. And we're also going to dive into the John Hirschbeck incident. So uh, that will be a truckload of fun. That's going to come to you next week. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on. This has been part one of our Baseball in Canada series, Deep Dive on Roberto Alomar. I'm Brent Cardi for Dave Glasser. Thanks for listening. Take care. We'll talk to you next week. Ah!